Hi guys, welcome to the Advanced Refrigeration Training Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Compass, along with my partner, Brett Wetzel. Today's episode is sponsored by Westermeyer Industries, the leaders in oil management and presser vessels for the commercial refrigeration industry. Whether you're involved with designing a system or tasked with servicing one, Westermeyer Industries has been helping meet the needs of customers like you for the past 20 years. They offer a broad catalog of stock system components with an in-house team of engineers to assist with custom solutions as well. From oil separators and heat exchangers to system monitoring devices, Westermeyer Industries are a total system specialist with industry expertise, engineering know-how, and the manufacturing muscle to help you tackle problems and deliver solutions. You're gonna learn to be true dodgeballers. Then you've got to learn the five D's of dodgeball. Dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. If you master the five D's, no amount of balls on earth can hit you. Quibbank, go ahead. Me or... Yeah, um, shouldn't we, like, learn by dodging balls that are thrown at us, or...? That's what this sack of wrenches is for. You can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. What? Any other questions? Oh my god! Yeah, uh, patches. Are you sure that this is completely necessary? Necessary? Is it necessary for me to drink my own urine? Probably not. No, but I do it anyway because it's sterile and I like the taste. Folks, I'd like to sing a song about the American dream. About me, about you. About the way our American hearts beat way down in the bottom of our chests. About that special feeling we get in the cockles of our hearts. Maybe below the cockles. Maybe in the subcockle area. Maybe in the liver. Maybe in the kidneys. Maybe even in the colon. We don't know. I'm just a regular Joe with a regular job. I'm your average white suburbanite slum. I like football and porno and books about war. I got an average house with a nice hardwood floor. My wife and my job, my kids and my car. My feet on my table and a Cuban cigar. But sometimes that just ain't enough to keep a man like me interested. Oh, no. Hi guys, welcome to the Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Compass, along with my co-host, Brett Wetzel. 
And today we're going to go over VFDs, why we use them, and a couple schemes of how we use them in condenser control applications and some compressor applications and some other fan motor applications. So Brett's going to start us off on, uh, we're, we're going to start off on uh, condenser control applications and different different ways to set these VFDs up and why we're doing them certain ways and not others. So you want to take, take it, Brett? Yeah, I want to hear about your week, though. You said you had a really interesting week this week. Oh, so, yeah, this week we're doing uh, some Novar control changeouts, and uh, uh, this is my, my fifth one of these, and they get worse every time. Just, uh, this this one was a uh, rough rough one. They, there was a lot programmed wrong, so it was just a nightmare of trying to figure things out. Things don't match prints. Prints are just suggestions. It, it, was, it was kind of a royal pain. I mean, uh, I was really hoping this one was going to go easy because the last couple were somewhat easy. But, yeah, so I spent uh, most of my last two days with another guy crawling around our bellies readdressing cases because somebody messed up and changed all the addresses on all the uh, single-deck cases. So we had to pull, I don't know, part like 25, 30 cases and readdress them. Fun. So – Makes for a real not fun week. What about you this week, Brett? I, fi- I finally got the communication uh, issue taken care of. Um, on top of having, after a remodel, they had a star configuration. Then they had an, uh, another star configuration to a wire that just went nowhere. And then they had another star configuration that had been there on the Spectrum network that had been there, oh, forever. And then on another set of cases where it was supposed to end, they just had a random rogue wire that just went off to nowhere. Um, I did some training this week. We did some like rack 101 stuff. And I am going to a facility that makes a certain kind of powder. And they have had, I think, several contractors out there. The guy right now is is using temporary cooling, and, and he's been so used to the equipment not working that he's basically spending a bunch of money every month just to keep it running with temporary equipment. Um, it's basically a heat craft piece of equipment, uh, condensing unit connected to a, almost like a, a Deskin type machine. Um, and he, they keep taking out compressors, keep having oil failures. They do have some sort of controller controlling the suction pressure. That's all I know. Uh, I know they have lots of flood back. They've taken out many a valve plate. And the only other thing that I'm thinking, because I've, I've seen something like this before. I, when I was up in Pennsylvania, I took care of a chocolate plant. Um, and every, when I first took over the account, they're like, oh, by the way, this this piece of equipment usually ends up uh, taking out the compressor at least twice a year. I'm like, why? And they're like, why don't, we don't know. They've changed bull- <laughs> pulleys. They've changed sheaves, uh, trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Um, they changed expansion valves. They went too small and they went too big. Um, then they tried going to the right size and then trying to file down the pins in hopes that they could do like a mid-size expansion valve. Long story short, I, I was standing in front changing the filters, a uh, big filter wall. I almost got blown off by the by the air that was coming out of the duct. So I, I tried something. I started, you know, I'm monitoring the superheat and started breaking off the, uh, the distribution grill. 
Superheat went from four degrees to six. Started breaking more stuff off. Went up to eight. Broke more off. Went up to twelve. And I just took the whole thing off. And basically, the the discharge grill on um, wherever they had it connected was restricting the air so much that that's actually what was causing it. And superheat instead of being up at the unit was you know supposed to be at least above twenty degrees. It had always been somewhere in the wheelhouse of eight. And forevermore, it's been twenty eight. And they haven't changed the compressor out in a couple of years now. So win for me. So I'm hoping this is like a similar situation where it's just basically some kind of crap restriction somewhere, but I guess I'll find out if I'm going out there tomorrow morning. So tonight we're going to be talking about VFDs. Uh, first, you know, we're going to go over um, the temperature control, uh, TD control, which is usually uh, how most condensers are, are being controlled. Uh, if someone didn't listen to the termino- terminology podcast before, you know, uh, TD is basically when we're t- speaking of condensers, we're basically t- talking about the temperature difference between what the ambient is and what the saturated condensing temperature is. So for example, if, if the condenser has a TD of 15 degrees, um, you know, basically if it's a hundred degrees outside, the saturated condensing temperature means the drop leg pressure converted should be, you know, approximately, uh, you know, 115 degrees. Um, typically on, on rack refrigeration, you're, you know, you're for anything low temp anywhere from, eight to 12 degrees, uh, medium temp stuff is usually like 12 to upwards of 17 can be up to 18, uh, single systems and split systems typically have a TD of about 20 degrees. Um, just to throw that out there, even though you're not ever going to see a VFD on a, on a single system, but, uh, basically, you know, we, uh, you get a lot more, uh, better control using a VFD, uh, VFD, re- uh, uses AC voltage and basically makes a, sine wave but it 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 actually pulses what's called uh, dc voltage they do pulse width modulation so basically it's pulsing dc voltage in a positive and a negative to basically make a sine wave out of a whole bunch of little square waves and that's basically how a vfd is doing its job it's basically it, you know it's saving money because uh you know your your control is not starting and stopping fans all day long um you know you you have better pressure control so it's a lot more smoother of a transition and um, just uh, saves vol- uh, saves money because you're um, you're cleaning up your uh, your signal going to you know going to your motors. Now, one of the things you do have to be concerned about when using a VFD, um, if it's something that you're putting a VFD on, you have to make sure that the insulation on the motor windings are rated for a VFD. Um, they, they have motor ratings. Uh, I'm sorry, motor winding ratings going from A to I want to say I, I, F, F, I think is the last. I'd have to be 100% positive on that. Um, I know they do have an F, X for it. F is a, yeah. F is a um, VFD rated. Yeah. So F has the, as the, the, you know, basically the more heavier duty windings because, you know, basically you're slowing down that fan. So you're not removing, uh, you're not moving uh, as much air across it. So, you know, the windings have to be able to take that excessive amount of heat that you're actually, you know, putting through that winding, you know, so anything you want to add, Kev? Yeah, you, I'm, I still see a lot of, uh, like motors come out on startup, even for manufacturers like crack, they're notorious for putting non, uh, non F motors in condenser coils and slapping a VFD on it, just sending it out the factory. So even though that that OEM motor may may not have you know that that insulation class in there, but if you're changing a 
motor, I would recommend that you put a VFD rated motor back in. Uh, like a ver like a U.S. motors like Verispeed motor, those are great motors. And the other thing, like Brent didn't mention, was uh, is a lot of these motors don't have uh, uh, bushing ground bushings on the shaft. So a lot of these motors that fail, like Brett was just talking about, like you know they're not uh, F rated. Well, even those F rated motors can still have issues with uh, bearing induced currents on the shaft. And what happens is you get this this bearing induced current on the shaft, and it pits out the bearings, causing little arcing. So there's shaft rounding rings you can put on these motors. Uh, some motors are already tapped for them. Like the U.S. motors, they sell a kit for them. Uh, I generally try to put the shaft rounding rings on if I'm changing a motor. It's cheap insurance for, you know, compared to changing another $500 motor again. You see a lot of bearing failures on drive changeouts after, like, drives are retrofitted. You see a lot of bearing failures. And most of those bearing failures, they're not from the, uh, you know, the motor spin is slower. They're from bearing-induced currents. Uh that are that are causing like arcing on the on the uh, bearings when the when the VFDs uh, moving. So I saw, I saw something today on, on a drive on an old drive, and I was trying to figure out whether we should keep it. We were flipping from a Commander SK to a Nidec M400, and we were trying to figure out. Uh, it, it looked like a it was like a Buckley transformer, but basically it was on the. Income, I believe the incoming side of the VFD. It was like a sign, like something that was supposed to clean up the sine wave a little bit. You know anything about them? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a. Uh, oh man, just a, it's a choke coil is what is what I've always heard referred to as. It's basically it's basically to help clean up the power a little bit come, coming into the VFD. Um, provides it like a little bit of voltage protection too for like a you know a spike or something. But yeah, you should have a choke coil on on most stuff i mean if it's got a drive on there i mean yeah. choke coils are cheap for like you know like a 30 horse drive you're talking like it's like 50 bucks for a choke coil yeah i mean it's just an iron core looks like a transformer it's just just to clean up the voltage i mean it's cheap insurance yeah true but they will blow up like crazy when they short out <laughs> well when you have like just a, a direct across the line Short? Is that what you're talking about? Like inside the actual like uh, choke coil itself, of like it's just like it's just like a transformer almost. So inside that choke coil itself, it could it could have a short. It's got windings in it. So I mean, inside there, like if if that thing shorts out, it's like a it's like a mini hand grenade. Depending on how big it is, too. The bigger the bigger the, the bigger the, the choke coil, the bigger it is. Right. So, no. Um, usually, if you're if you're doing some sort of TD control, um, you know you can uh, use the controller to do this. Um, the controller does have to be able to, you know, have the refrigerant in there to make sure that you know it can basically take that pressure and convert it to a saturated. Um, making sure that the ambient temperature sensor is underneath the coil. You don't want it in the electrical cabinet. Um, I've seen already where, you know, a condenser would end up running a higher, higher head pressure. Cause it's basically, it's, it's doing floating head is what basically what a condenser is doing 
you know, underneath uh, TD control. Basically, you know, has the ambient temperature rises, it raises, it raises the, you know, basically the pressure that it's trying to maintain, right? But using the saturated condensing temperature. So, you know, we had a rack that kept going off on high head and basically it would do it just randomly. And here to find out, I looked at the ambient temperature sensor and graphed that and it was getting all the way up to 130 degrees. I'm like, there's no way. And, and you know, traced out the sensor and find out that it was actually in the electrical cabinet and electrical cabinet was getting up to 130 because it was in, within the sun, you know. No one ever programmed a max in the VFD. Um so basically what happens is, you know, if, like I said before, you know, it's going off of the, the TD of the actual condenser. Um, so we would need a drop leg pressure transducer mounted on, on, on the drop, uh, on the drain leg and an ambient temperature sensor underneath the coil. But like I said, it has to be underneath the first fan that's on or the last fan that's off, which basically is the, the one closest to the header. Um, that's so we have air going across that all the time to make sure we're getting an accurate ambient temperature. Um, you can do TD control with an evaporative condenser, but at that point you actually have to do uh, what's called uh, use a wet bulb temperature instead of a dry bulb. Basically to do that, you need uh, an outside temperature sensor and you'd also need an outside relative humidity uh, sensor so you can actually get an accurate, accurate wet bulb and figure out, you know, uh, what, you know, what TD you're going to maintain with the wet bulb temperature because you're using water to, you know, basically as the cooling media on the evaporative condenser. Anything you want to add? No, that was a pretty good, uh, you know, explanation on the like, TD control. One, actually, you know what, there is something I want to add. So, you know, you're talking about your, yeah, your ambient temp sensor and everything and your, your condenser is going to maintain that TD, mm-hmm. but there becomes a point where it is no longer efficient to run the condenser off TD, like usually like around like 95 degrees. Like I like to lock on, you know, my fans. I'm not going over a 95 degree saturation temp because you're not saving any energy there. Yeah. You're just putting more wear and load on the rack. So you want to try to desuperate as much as you can at that point. So usually like 87 to like 89 degrees, I like I have my own program I use for CPC. Like I lock my, I lock my outdoor air temp sensor so it can't go any farther. Because like in CPC, you you can't program a max max TD uh, or a max uh, SCT set point like you can in uh, in Danfoss. So you have to like you have to fake out the controller to make a max setting. So that's what I'll do. Like it past like eighty seven degrees, I run my fans. You know, one hundred percent. Because you're not really saving any energy, you're just causing it to, uh, you cause your head pressure to just get higher and increase yeah. your discharge temps. I mean, most of these condensers are sized on a, on a TD spec, but let's be honest, that TD spec is 95% of the time not right because of the load issues. Yeah. I mean, you, you, that, 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 this size for 100%. So, I mean, a lot of times our TDs and supermarkets are a lot lower than what the design is because you have you have more condenser than you do compressor so when it is a little hotter like that you could afford to run a little you know, i mean for what you're going to save in horsepower I mean, do you agree for what you're going to waste in horsepower you're probably going to save a little bit on the compressor end at that point well i mean you get to a certain point where you just want to start bringing down you know the saturated condensing temperature at a max um 
any i believe any too like you can you can actually program you can have a separate thing feeding it so you could actually make some sort of sensor control and you could have a, a max value in there and not have it not have it feed that way here nor there it's you know basically yeah no i agree we're basically you, you don't want to go too high you know you're not going to keep ramping up higher and higher as the ambient goes at one point like i know uh some some uh some customers, you know, they, they go depending on the refrigerant, right? So, uh, some some uh, uh, customers will do like a max of about 114 degrees saturated with uh, 407A. Um, See, that's it, rough, man. That's high. Uh, you got well. I'm in Texas. You know what I mean? Remember that? You know there there are <laughs> there are there are some weeks where you could sit on a condenser and burn your ass. That's how hot it is. You know. So. Yeah, I guess that's the difference between uh, you know sitting on a condenser and freezing to it. <laughs> I've been there too, man. I spent it, like I said, I spent uh, about five years in Connecticut, man. You know it's you know it's cold, and I know you know it's cold when, when you have you're when you're having to throw bottles of refrigerant in, in a slop sink just to keep up the pressure so you can actually. Oh yeah. I got I got a couple yeah. I got a couple of pictures where uh, it was minus twenty seven with the wind chill. And I'm having to wrap plastic wrap on the top part of the shrouds of the condenser fans because um, I couldn't get the head pressure above 15 pounds on an EnviroGuard. It just did nothing wanted to move, nothing. And basically, I'm throwing, throwing shit in the slop sink to warm it up so I can get refrigerant into it. I'm trying to raise the head pressure, and I'm excited when I got the head pressure finally up to about 75 pounds. Yeah, that's, um, that's a whole other ballgame. But yeah, like so, like with, with, with CPC, for example, Emerson, like there is no max float unless you unless you make some kind of program. It, it'll just keep going to the moon, you know, till till it hits that fast recovery set point and forces everything on to one hundred percent. It'll just keep raising that SCT target to whatever the TD is plus ambient. Uh, so I mean that, that that's the only downfall of doing TD with CPC with with. Dan Foss, you can actually program a min and max uh, set point. So that, that, that's where the little issue comes in with uh, CBC. You got to kind of fake out the outdoor air temp sensor to make it work properly. Like you said, either that or find out what the pressure would be of the saturated condensing temperature and just put that in for your fast recovery set point. That way yeah, but get- then you got to watch that because then you're like coming in on a fast recovery like nonstop. We're in fast recovery once it hits 100 degrees here. So, <laughs> yeah, so we don't we don't have that problem. <laughs> but uh, so we we went over the controller way to control TD, and like the next way to control TD would be actually using the drive itself. Like the drive would be a uh, what would be considered a smart drive. Now, when I say that, I mean, like, it's got more than just a zero to 10 volt program in it, like you would get from a, the controller doing it. So when I say smart drive, I mean, it has a predefined PLC program in it, you know, with uh, the refrigerant type and everything else in there. Uh, and it is actually doing all the condenser functions itself. Now, the couple benefits to this is it's standalone. So meaning if you lost the controller, this drive will still function and you will still have condenser head pressure control and all that stuff. If 
the, the controls go down, you're still that. And I mean, and if they the drive goes down, you still have uh, control with the EMS system over the condenser if you need to take it back. So the way this works is you're, it, it's very similar to the uh, EMS control. You're going to have a temp sensor underneath the condenser. You're going to have a pressure transducer. Now, there's a couple ways to do this. You could have a pressure transducer going to the drive itself. Uh, we're going to talk more so about Danfoss and some NIDAC stuff. I mean, most of the stuff I see with smart drives is, is Danfoss and some NIDAC stuff. But the Danfosses work extremely well. Probably one of the best condenser drives you can get. Uh, very easy to set up. The way they're, the way they're doing it is they're taking uh, two analog signals. You get your uh, your via you get your uh, outside air temp sensor, which you'd be using to figure out TD, and they're going to be using your uh, your imp, your drop leg pressure or your discharge pressure, depending on how the customer has it set up. Now you could have your own transducer, and the, the drive could be totally separate, or they could be piggybacking the signal off the EMS systems transducer, meaning like they're grabbing the signal and ground wire and they're just tapping into it and then sending it back to the drive for an analog input. Now, this drive is figuring out the TD uh, via a bunch of settings inside the drive. It has refrigerant profiles in it basically, and it has your set points in it your min and max uh, TD settings, your uh, min and max pressure, your ramp ups and ramp downs. Now, this is going to be controlling your TD and your split functions, depending on the customer. It may be controlling your split. Uh, so, I mean, this is this is a s similar thing you're going to see 99% of the time at most Walmarts. Not every Walmart, like some, some of the newer stores went back to non- non-standalone uh, drives, but most of those Walmart Sam stores have these Danfoss drives or a uh, control techniques, which is uh, NIDAC now, uh, VFDs, and they're using those to control their condensers. They work extremely well uh, when they're set up properly. Most of the time when you're having issues with them, the setup's not right, and then there's actually a Danfoss setup guide from i mean i keep it in my van i have it on my phone like i use it all the time and if you follow that guide for them i mean those those things are pretty much dead nuts on um they kind of offset the uh the set point a little bit to make up for the glide i think me and you were talking about that the one day brett yeah how they so, uh you want to go over there real quick yeah so basically uh you know the drives do not have a dew point and bubble pt chart they have a dew point. So basically, you know, you know, we're trying to maintain saturated condensing temperature, but, you know, basically of the drop leg. And you know, because of these high glided refrigerants, um, you know, either want to use, uh, you know, the bubble point or for most condenser controls in most manufacturers, they just end up using the midpoint. So in order to do this, that, you know, in, in the Danfoss guide for setting up those drives for that particular one, they actually have you pad the TD by about four degrees um, to make up for the, you know, basically the glide of the refrigerant. Um, so if the TD, if it says on the refrigerant, I'm sorry, on the RS schedule, on the refrigerant schedule, that it, the glide is supposed to be, you know, 15, uh, basically you're to set up for 19, you know, basically just to get a, a, 
a glided value, you know, to, you know, on there to, to maintain a better uh, saturated condensing temperature. Um, you know, like I said before, we're going off the, uh, the ambient temperature sensor and, uh, you know, trying to maintain that control. Uh, when doing this, uh, we have to make sure, I mean, because we don't know we could have uh, an ACI, we could have a BAPI, we could have a CPC, we could have a Danfoss, you know, different transducer on there. Uh, making sure that whatever transducer you have, it's actually, you know, set up for that particular, you know, pressure transducer. Um, I have seen on NIDIC drive, and this happened once or twice, where the NIDIC drive was basically, when you, whenever you change something like a pressure transducer on a NIDIC or a uh, or an ambient temperature sensor, after you change that parameter for it, you actually have to, you know, down, down power cycle the drive in order to actually have it, you know, come up with the with the right with the right parameter and uh a gentleman was having a problem you know with, with uh control when it was got zero degrees when it actually snowed here in texas for two days and um he ended up uh his pr his pressure transducer was showing 240 but in reality it was it was only like six, um 76 or something like that the head pressure was all the way in the toilet and um it was programmed right but it was showing the wrong pressure so i said all right well Check the program. He did. It was right. And I said, well, program it wrong, power it down, program it right, and then turn it back up. And basically, it started running. And basically, that's what he ended up doing. And, it, you know, once he once he got it back programmed, it, it started working properly. Uh, same thing with the ambient temperature sensor. Make sure that that thing is actually programmed right for the, uh, for the proper uh, uh, pressure, or I'm sorry, temperature sensor. Um, you know, uh, for the Walmart program, sometimes they use Novar, um, uh, temperature sensors, or, you know, they, they do use the, the, the PT 1000s. Anything you want to add? Yeah. So one thing on those, uh, newer NIDAC drives, you have to have that drive come out with that program. And if you just say if you're at one of those walmart sam stores and you just order a nidec drive you say you just go to like some random place to get a nidec drive that drive will not work you have to get one that's flashed with that program in it it's not like the dan Fosses where you could just back it up off the screen it has to come with that like set of programs in there it's it's actually called. Uh, I just went through the I literally just went through this today. It's 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 a deep source program because that's what the, with the we got. So Walmart usually goes through Motion Industries for all their you know NIDEC drives, and that's because NIDEC basically Motion Industries actually programs all their drives for them. Well, we gave them a quote. Uh, you know, I gave the purchasing department a quote for it, and for some odd reason, they ordered the drive from. From Emerson, I didn't realize I went out there to go help somebody, and and I'm looking for the parameters for the pressure transducer, the ambient temperature sensor, and the refrigerant. I can't find it; it wasn't in there. So now I basically have to rip it back off the wall, box it up, send it to Motion, have them program it, the deep source, and then you know basically have it ship back because it's not you know it's not like I could go to another store like with a Danfoss. You can you know take one display, take that program, put it on the put it on the fascia, put it on another drive, and and put it on the other one uh nidec you can't do it it's it uh, i think um gentleman called it a deep source program where basically it's it's deep in you know in the actual base um you can pull it back up like if you if someone 
if it loses uh, one part of the program, you can actually pull it back up from, you know, from the deep source that's embedded in the drive. Um, it's almost comparable, I think, to almost like the Commander SK having the thumb drive, except for this doesn't have a thumb drive that's removable. Yeah, one one quick tip with the Commander SK, do not push that thumb drive in too hard because it's just a plastic little clip on the backside. It'll go right through the other side. Why'd you Been push there, it? done that. You don't want to do that because then it drives junk. No, why'd you do it? <laughs> because I I didn't think it went in all the way. And then <laughs> it went in all the way. <laughs> it went all the way in. It's supposed to just be the tip of, of the uh, card in there. <clears throat> um, so th th that's a basic overview. Like, most of the time, like you're going to see a lot of Danfoss stuff. I mean, the Danfoss drives, you could change the transistors, the temp sensors, like Brett was talking, like on the on the NIDAC ones. The Danfoss ones, you could change everything but the temp sensor. You could change it to a CPC transducer, a Novar transducer, uh, a Danfoss transducer. All you got to do is change the scaling inside the drive itself. So if you're if you're out and you've got a bad transducer at a Walmart, on uh, a condenser and you'd say it's got a Danfoss uh, transducer on there or a, uh, or a uh, Novar transducer and you only got a CPC transducer on your truck for the drive, you could change as long as that, that transducer is not also supplying condenser uh, control board, you could, all, you could just basically take that transducer, put a CPC one in there and just reprogram it and that, and that drive will work fine. Um, same thing, like you just got to watch, like uh, if say the drive isn't working and nothing's working and everything's down, if your discharge transistor shorts out on like a Novar store or they're taking the, or they're taking it off a CCM, uh, the condenser control board, and you go up there and you got no DC power feeding, no 24 volt DC power feeding that uh, transistor and you're not getting the signal supply or uh, ground back, that drive won't work because it's not going to see any pressure. So that's just one thing to be aware of. And I mean, if you do get in that, in that, I mean, you could always, you know, use a nine volt battery, something like that to re redo it. There's uh, plenty of things you could use to make it work, to make, make a signal. If you don't have a signal generator, just like a, a C123 battery, 3.5 volts, which is uh, great for testing IDCM modules. If you don't, if you don't, if you want to make a poor man's uh, 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 voltage voltage generator, yeah, you could use a battery and a potentiometer too. That works. Um, uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, what he's talking about is is, is being able to manipulate, uh, you know, the the pressure in case you know something were to happen with, you know, because you know typically you're getting the power of the DC voltage off of the drive. Um, never cross any kind of AC voltage with the DC voltage that's in there. You're going to end up frying out uh, what's called the rectifier, which basically takes the AC and converts it to DC. Um, Making sure that, you know, if you're ever doing a PM on a drive, uh, you know, making sure that you're blowing out all the, uh, all, you know, all the heat sinks in the back, you know, drives create a, a copious amounts of heat. So uh, make sure that, you know, all the heat sinks, the fans are actually uh, blown out with air with nitrogen. 
you know, that's going to help prolong the life of the fan as well as the drive. Um, you know, most drives have uh, three contactors in them. All right, usually labeled uh, M1, M2, and M3. And basically, M1 is usually the 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 contactor that that allows power to go into the drive. Because remember what I said. You know, we're taking uh, AC voltage and, and turning it into DC voltage, right? Um, so you have a contactor in the in the beginning uh, that lets voltage go into the go into the drive itself. Uh, basically, then there's another uh, contactor on the outlet, uh, typically M2, and that is going to cause that's going to let the voltage, the DC voltage, now leave the drive and go into go in, go into the actual motors, and you know let it have the you know the the you know the variable frequency that it's to, that it wants. Um, they have typically an M3 contactor, which is a bypass contactor. Okay. You know, that is there in case the drive were to fault, you know, usually on every single drive, you have some sort of, uh, some sort of fault, uh, set of relay contacts. And if God forbid the drive, you know, you have a condenser fan motor that shorts where it sends an earth ground to, you know, back to the drive, it's going to fault out that drive. It's going to shut down and not allow it to damage the actual drive. So what it's going to do is shut off the power going out from the drive and then energize the bypass contactor, which is basically in parallel with the, uh, with the, uh, with the VFD. Um, so then instead of, you know, running that voltage through the drive, turning it into DC, it's just taking the AC voltage and driving it right, you know, right to the condenser fan motors. Um, anything you want to add to that? You don't want to ever push the drive bypass contactor in when the, when the uh, drive contactor is energized, or else you're going to have a really loud, you know, explosion, and you're going to let the smoke out of the drive. So you don't ever want to push contactors in when a VFD is, you know, involved, because you need to make sure that you're not going to energize the bypass contactor. Usually, there's auxiliary uh, contacts on there to keep one or the other locked out. So if the, the, the VFD bypass contactors energized, the uh, VFD contact output contactor is mechan or is ele electrically mechanically isolated via the auxiliary contacts. So that way one can't energize when the other is energized. Cause if you do, you're going to have a big smoke show. Those, those DC rectifiers, in the uh, phase gates, basically inside the inside the drive, cannot take that AC power on the other side. It's a potential difference, and it will cause an explosion. So it, it will pull. The, what's that? I said it can. It'll take it for a second or a half. Till it doesn't. <laughs> I bet. But, yeah. Um. So typically, those are always wired and normally closed. So then that way, um, if the if the M2, so you'll have an auxiliary set of contacts on, on either the side or on the top of one of the, one of the contactors, and it'll be a normally closed set of contacts. So like if M2, which is the outlet of the drive would energize, basically it's going to open the set of contacts that are connected to the coil of M3 to ensure that you physically cannot have uh, M2 and M3 come on at the same time where you're actually allowing AC and DC voltage together. Um, I just worked with someone uh, the other day and he's like, yeah, I worked on a drive. He's like, I felt real scared. And the only thing I can remember was Brett said, don't push in the damn contactors at the same time. Don't, don't just don't do it. 
And I, I laugh because that's one of the only things he remembered, you know, when we were, we were talking, you know, I was just giving him a quick overview on, you know, safety, safety hits, you know, what not to do with a drive. And that was the biggest one that I always hit home with because, and I don't want anyone getting hurt, you know, and if, you know, one of the biggest things is not being educated on something and that's why I end up, you know, some people end up, you know, getting hurt. They don't, they don't know, they don't understand. And, you know, it's, I just, I, I try to push that home whenever, whenever I think that's always usually the first thing I talk about when we start talking about contactors or I'm sorry about VFDs where I'm like, Hey, you know, first things first, don't ever just assume that you can just push this shit in and then explain why. And then when I say that they'll blow off the wall, they're like, okay, I'm not going to do that. The other thing you need to be real conscious of when you're working on VFDs is the fact that they have large capacitors in them and that those capacitors take time to drain down after the VFDs power down, just because the screen goes blank and the power goes out for a second, doesn't mean that VFD those capacitors are completely that there's a, a bleed resistor inside those capacitors that have to bleed bleed down bleed down the capacitor banks inside the VFD because otherwise they they store a charge. And it's not like a capacitor on you like you know a residential air conditioner or a fan motor. You're talking capacitors that have enough voltage in them to kill you. So. You, that's one thing to be aware of. I mean, some of those capacitors on some drives, some large drives, it may take up to 10 minutes to discharge them. So just make sure you test with your meter, you know, on the incoming and outgoing voltage that you actually have no voltage coming, you know, into the drive and out of the drive. So when you're looking at it. So the next thing I want to go over is the two. So using a VFD. So we'll break this down kind of like kind of in a, I guess like an Emerson term, because I think it's a lot easier for guys to understand. So you have like two different types of condenser control when it comes to variable speed. You have like variable speed it, where you're just running all the motors. They run the, they run in the condenser all together. So those those motors are running all, so if you have 12 motors in a condenser, all 12 motors are running together and the VFD is running the motors up and down you know, in synchronization together. They're never cycling off. They only all shut off when they all shut off. Yeah, that's pretty standard. A lot of older Walmarts do that with Danfoss drives. It works pretty well depending on the ambient. You know, they'll split the condenser in half and run it like that. But so one thing to really watch out for is like if it's really cold out and uh, th this, this strategy doesn't work as well because you don't really have any fan cycling to back it up. Uh, on a properly sized rack, it works really well. Now, the next thing we're going to go over is what, what I would call, and Emerson calls it VSS combined. So you're using variable speed and fan cycling combined. So this is like a, like a, a cooler weather application. So uh, out like by me in Chicago, like it, it gets super cold out here in the wintertime. So I mean, we can't run 12 fans at the same time. We need to split the condenser in half. Okay, we drop off half the fans. Well, still six fans is too many. So what we start doing is uh, the VFD is going to control those fans up to a point, depending on the how the PID uh, loop runs inside the controller or whatever's controlling it. And then it's going to start dropping off fans, you know, one by one till it gets to the last, till it gets down, then it'll start ramping up the, the drive a little bit and picking up fans as it needs it. So it's trying to control with less fans. 
this is the most efficient way to control the condenser, but your control algorithm has to be like on point so you don't get this fan cycling and VFD fighting each other. You want them to work in synchronization. So I kind of play with your settings to, depending on what you have in order to make this work properly. Otherwise, you could end up with a machine gun just constantly cycling contactors on and off. You usually got to play with your settings and uh, to get get it to work properly. But like this is like in a cold weather application. I mean, you pretty much need that DSS combined, the variable speed control along with fan cycling and area like where Brett is. I mean, you can get a lot way with just variable speed probably most of the time, except for, you know, when Texas froze over. I mean, yeah. When they learned about holdback valves. <laughs> That's so damn right. So, um, and I have a question, um, you know, so we have, we have a way we set up, um, you know, it's, it's per, per customer, right? Uh, as far as setting, yep. setting head pressure controls with, running VFD because a lot of people are like, oh, well, it has a minimum saturated, so it's never going to go below that. Well, anyone that's lived either, you know, up, up by you or, you know, on the East Coast, I mean, they'll, they'll know that, yeah, you still need the holdback valve. You still need the, you know, receiver pressurization valve. Um, what's your threshold? Like, I mean, let's just say you're doing a saturated of, you know, 77 for a minimum for a VFD. I mean, I know you like floating the hell out of everything, but I'm saying, like, if you're doing 77 degrees, you know, for the saturated for that, you know, where, where are you setting your, your, your holdback valve and your receiver pressurization? So I pretty much go the same number across the board unless it's customer spec to be something else. 70, mm -hmm. 60, 55. So fans off – or my fan control set point is 70, okay? Fans completely off at 65. Mm -hmm. um, holdback at 60. Mm -hmm. degrees and then 55 degrees for my receiver pressurization gotcha rock solid numbers up here i mean i keep them tight i mean they're tight i mean you got to be on on your money with how it's set up but like i mean rock solid so don't send um, them up the right way what what's that nothing good <laughs> okay so that that's the vss combined method for, for cycling condenser fan motors with this. I mean, most CPC stores you're going to see like that unless they're uh, unless they're running uh, those terrible ECM VFD motors, those Gutner mo or not Gutner motors. Impast. Uh, Impast. I, I have an absolute hatred for those things. They're not bad. As mean, as they're not, so, so just if so, no one's familiar with Impast, uh, impasse motors that they can be controlled via, uh, you know, a zero to 10 signal, uh, or they can be controlled via, uh, uh, Modbus where you're actually, yeah, so you can communicate via, you know, the controller can actually talk right to them. Uh, you know, I, I don't mind if they're, if they're zero to 10, they're expensive as hell. I think they're seven or eight grand a piece. Um, and man, so typically, Nowadays, what what anyone does as far as control strategy with those is they'll uh, run them at a hundred percent at zero volts, and they'll run them at you know zero percent at ten volts, which is a really smart idea. 
because basically, you know, if you have an analog output, because that's what you're driving it with, right? You're driving with a DC signal, so that's an analog output. If you're driving it with a DC signal and, and the, the device that's actually putting out the signal takes a shit, it's okay. It's in the middle of summer. You're just going to run 100%. The first time I ever ran into this was about 10 years ago, and mine, my analog output died. Um, I'm pacing back and forth. I ended up having to put a battery on to get it to run. But nowadays, now that they they actually program from the factory to be fail safe like that, for that for that very reason, Kevin hates him because he's had a bad experience with trying to mod bust the things together with having all the noise with them. No, no, no. I've had bad experiences because they can't handle like a drop of rain and they fuck they short out and cause massive casualties. So, all right. With the with the EV, with the zero to ten thing and the ten to zero, I always, unless it is customer spec, set every condenser up to be ten to zero. So ten volts would be condenser full off for that very reason that Brett said, because it's your fail safe. You want everything in refrigeration to fail on, so that's our fail safe. But with the uh, EBM motors, especially the older ones, I've seen like uh, the last two condensers I started up that had them. Every motor came back to a terminal block, which I think is a lot better idea. So every motor came back to a terminal block in the condenser, and they all got the 10 to 0 volt signal at the same time, which, great idea. The older motors, so what they would do is the lead motors would be 10 to 0 volts. Okay, so they would be 10 to 0 volts. There's a jumper in there. I think it's DI1. If you jump ground to DI1, it changes that uh, motor from 0 to 10 to 10 to 0. Now, what they do is, so they take the lead motor and it's jumpered out. And then the, uh, they go through the relay. So if there's a, and then there's a 10-volt signal in here, which we're going to get to in a second. So they wire the 10-volt signal to normally open. They wire the signal coming out of the AO out from the, the uh, EBM, the lead EBM motor to the normally uh, closed and they wire the next motor analog in to the common. So basically they set this up. So if the first motor is going to get a signal from the controller, so the 10 to zero, say it's at, at five volts. Okay. It's going to, it's going to scale the signal complete opposite. It's going to scale uh, zero to 10 volts to the next motor. So zero being full uh, or zero being off, 10 volts being full. The reason they do this is if the first motor fails it's or goes to default, it's going to kick all the other motors to 100%. Um, by when it switches the fault relay, it puts 10 volts to the next motor. It sounds like a great theory and when it works, it, it does work. But if the first motor ground out and the relay fails or somehow the relay fails, there's no 10 volts going to the next motor. What manufacturer is doing this? I've, I've never seen that set up. So bone, that's how they, that's how they wire the EVM motors. And that's how EVM wants them done or wanted them done up until this point. So on those motors themselves, every one of those motors has a 10 volt DC output signal in it. So if you do lose, like, because we had this problem, we had a store where we lost the lead motors and we lost random motors. We ended up losing like 12 of them in a year. Um, 
because of water issues and other issues with lightning strikes. So if you were to lose the actual like analog output module, so I was a able to rewire a motor just to, you know, MacGyver it, but B you could jump ground to or uh, AI one to 10 volts and all the motors and they'll take off around hundred percent. They have their own 10 volt signal inside the motor itself. Basically, those impasse motors, if, if no one's ever seen them, it's basically every single motor has its own individual little drive on there. That's why they're usually seven or eight grand a piece. Uh, and what we're talking about, so we first, you know, when we first started the podcast, we were talking about, you know, VFDs that are basically, you know, self-contained. You know what I mean? Where they, they don't require any external signal. Basically, they're making up however well they want the fans based off of, you know, the, the pressure transducer and the ambient temperature. Now, you know, the way that we're, you know, talking about things, we're, we're actually sending some sort of signal from, you know, whether it be Dan Foss or, uh, or I keep wanting to say control, uh, E2, um, you know, RDM basically, you know, scaling that out, uh, sometimes, uh, so RDM right now, uh, with in conjunction with zero zone, what they're doing is they're actually, there, you know, I, I don't know if I don't know enough about the RDM programming, but I know that you know they're usually they are sending a zero to ten volt signal out to their stuff. But what they do is they actually use a, a converter board, which basically takes the zero to ten and reverses it, and you know sends it out you know ten to zero. Um, so in case something would happen with the analog out, you know it, it's still you know it's still sending out that that voltage to those to those motors to to you know run at a certain hertz. Have you ever seen a, a drive, Kevin, where it, uh, it actually is sending out uh, more than uh, 60 hertz, or it's actually sending out 100 hertz, and there's no rhyme or reason for it? Like it's not programmed to do it? No, it ju it is programmed for it, but something in the drive is just telling it that it, you know, it, we had one that was delivering, I think, 580 volts out to these uh, out to these condenser fan motors, and it was programmed right. Um, I think something just snapped in the drive where, you know, it, it, it just wouldn't, it, it wasn't going to 60 Hertz anymore. It was going to, I think 90 Hertz or hundred Hertz or something like that. It was something, something ridiculous where, you know, we had all these condenser fan motors basically start going off on, on internal overload because it was just way too much heat draw on it. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen one where it wasn't programmed to do it, do it, but I mean, everything could fail. I mean, I've seen them where they where they potentially ran thing. We've had we had a condenser where it was designed to run at seventy hertz. Like they they would essentially uh, um, they it essentially would run faster. It's the way it was designed. But yeah, yes. I mean anything can fail. So remember um, when? So go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, what I was going to say is we have you know um, you know there, there's always usually some sort of enable. Whether it be an enable and a forward uh, command, you know, we, we we basically have to have three things for a drive that you know we have to have the voltage going to the drive, uh, we have to have a some sort of signal, whether it be generated off its own or a zero to ten or ten to zero, and we also have to have a uh, you know a run command. We have to have some sort of relay relay output on our BAS system. Uh, you'll hear me say BAS every so often. It's a building automation system. So, you know, just to cover all the basics. Um, basically, you know, you have to, you know, just tell it that, hey, you're ready to go. Um, otherwise, a lot of the drives will say inhibit or not ready. Um, 
This is usually done by jumping two or potentially three sets of contacts on on a particular drive. I believe, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan Foster's enable, it was at 52, 53? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, so basically, um, you know, you have 24 volts uh, DC coming off the drive, and you're basically just using an external set of contacts from, you know, from your BAS system to basically close that set of contacts to say, hey, yes, I, in fact, am calling for the drive, and I want you to run. You know what I mean? Because, you know, you might be setting zero volts to it, which might tell it to run 100%, but until you actually enable the drive, you know, it's not going to do anything. Uh, sometimes uh, a lot of these smart drives that he was referring to too also, you know, control other functions like you were stating before, like controlling the split. Um, Dan Foss has what are, what are called comparator values. I don't understand how they, how they basically convert to a pressure because like for a comparator value for 407, so it can, so it splits at uh, 138 or something like that is set for 24 doesn't make any rhyme or reason. It's something deep in their program that they're just, they're using that, what they call a comparator number. That's basically telling it when it wants it to, you know, when it, when it wants it to actually split and unsplit. Um, you also have a fault set of contacts usually on, on every single drive. So in case something happens, especially if it's a singular drive where it's working on its own, can tell the BAS system, Hey, I got a freaking problem. You need to do something else. And that's usually when you energize that bypass contactor that we were talking about before. Um, with the enable though, back to that real quick. Um, sometimes it's not just closing two sets of contacts. Sometimes, uh, you are one set of contacts. Sometimes you have to basically jump, jump, uh, potentially three sets, uh, three sets of, uh, wires together because some drives have a forward and reverse, um, command with them. So if you were enabling, uh, I think NIDEC, NIDEC has forward, forward and, uh, forward and run enable that you'd have to jump together with the 24 volts uh, DC that's on actually on the drive to actually make it, you know, ready where it doesn't say inhibit, where it's not, where it's actually not ready. Got anything else? Yeah. Chief? One thing I want to go over with those uh, M400 drives. So, I mean, we're going to go over this certain customer because this is where I see it all the time and it really messes guys up. So at an Aldi, they have these cookie cutter drive setups. They use M400 drives with a bypass cabinet. So this is a situation that I run into quite often, and I, it's very easily avoidable, and it messes guys up. So uh, at these Aldi's, they have the condenser control board controlling the bypass contactor and drive contactor, output contactor. Now it's on the same output. It's, it's output number eight. Dip switch should be down. Because this happens all the time. Guys force the dip switch or something else. Okay, but what happens is there's a fuse in there for the CPC board, obviously. After a power outage, this happens all the time. I don't know why, but the drive con the drive bypass contactor will short out. I've never seen the drive output contactor short out. It's always a drive bypass contactor, but what ends up happening is guys try to like jump out the jump out things to get it to work. Well, they need to replace the fuse and unwire the drive bypass contactor out uh, coil wire in order to get it back on. Because if the drive, the way they wire these these in these are these are semi smart drives that Modbus 
they're getting a Modbus signal from the E2 to tell it to run, how fast to run, if there's a fault. All that comes in from the E2. None of it's a hard fault signal. So, like, one thing you want to watch out for is, yeah, you may be telling it to run on the E2, but the forward run enable is still hardwired through the bypass contactor auxiliary. So if the bypass contactor is pulled in, it will drop out the, the drive enable. So this is like one thing it messes guys up. They'll try to bypass things, but until you until you get that that contactor for the drive pulling back in and it dropping out the other contactor, it's not going to. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know why 208 coils seem to fail at like a higher rate. I mean, you ever notice that, Brett, like 208 coils, they get your power outages, just shit the bed, but 120-volt ones like hardly ever do? Because you run the potential of single phasing, right? You're not necessarily always getting yeah. back both the phases, right? You you have a higher probability of, of missing a phase. So, I mean, I mean that's that's what makes sense to me anyway. Yeah, I just uh, it's always something I always kind of kind of wondered about because you ever notice like, I mean we we have stores up here at our power outages. I've had a forty contactors burn out at once, but then you go to a store it's got a hundred twenty and it's got original contactors. Some of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, it's it's you know probably because you know how many times have you seen where you know you get you get a store back and things start lighting up and then everything sounds. <laughs> Because you're basically only getting two out of three phases, you know what I mean? Sounds like money. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm not saying it doesn't. Also, sounds like a late ass night. We had a uh, we had a store out. Uh, man, uh, when when uh, when Sandy hit, when Hurricane Sandy hit, when I was on the East Coast, um, and we got flooded the hell. And you know, in Connecticut, there's a lot of you know a lot of little 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 towns and stuff that are right on, right on the shore and stuff. And, and it just so many generators all over the place, people not ordering the right size generator. Um, I had a guy at a small, small grocery store was trying to run his, his store off of a uh, welding generator. Like he had a small, small SJ cord, you know, probably eight gauge running, running to the, to the contact. I'm like, is this for your lighting? He's like, no, no, that's for the rack. I'm like, that's, that's not going to work. Um, you know, the best is when, you know, you have a large box store, uh, like a, like a, some sort of club store and you're there and, and all of a sudden, you know, you're testing everything on the generator. Everything's working fine, you know, and then you, uh, big ass panels start going to defrost and you're, you're all your shit shuts down. Cause you're basically going from 480 down to maybe 390 because everyone made sure that it was big enough to run the rack totally forgot about the electric defrost you know or you get a generator big enough yeah. or you get a generator big enough and not have a big enough uh diesel tank for it so it runs out in four hours <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not good yeah it's not good but the uh that, that was a you know like a brief explanation on how like the cadaster drives work i mean uh We'll go quick into like uh, compressor drives real quick. I mean, we're not gonna spend like that much time on it. It'd be like a, another podcast probably. But so with like compressor drives, so we're using a VFD to control the compressor speed. 
basically to control our saturated suction temperature, you know, to keep it steady. The steadier we keep the suction saturation, the better the rack runs, the less cycles we have. So a VFD is a great option. It's honestly probably one of the best options to control your suction pressure on a rack. It's going to give you the smoothest control out of anything. I mean, a digital compressor is great, but it's choppy. You know, where, where you have like the, the loading and unloading. You don't get that with a VFD. You get nice, smooth operation. The only problem with VFD is you're, you're, you're fixed on how, how fast or how slow you can go via the compressor speed because a piston-driven compressor is a constant torque compressor. So your torque isn't changing like a fan motor would. Like you're, you, you can't vary your torque. A, uh, a compressor is a fixed torque compressor. So like once you get down to a certain amount, it needs that amount of torque in order to move that compressor still. Most compressors are like, uh, you know, obviously it's, zero to six, it's 30 to 60 hertz. Some compressors let you go down to 25. Um, so you get that you get that range in there. So I mean you don't have as much range, but if you size the compressor properly, you won't have an issue with, along with some unloaders and some other compressors, you won't have issues. But I mean, we're doing basically the same thing, except the PLC, CPC, Dan Foss, Novar Comtrol. I don't know why I'm saying control now. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> um EIL, ECI. No, we didn't have any of that stuff. Um, so that that'll be controlling that comp that compressor. I mean, you could have a bypass set up. It depends on the customer if whether they have one or not. I mean, you should. I mean, but that compressor is controlled off a zero to ten volt signal or a ten to zero volt signal, depending on how it's set up, and it's going to be controlling via your suction your suction group is going to be sending that control to it now. Um, some things you got to watch for, obviously, is oil pressures. Uh, you don't want to be at the bottom range of your, uh, your run, you know, the entire time. You could have, you could make some oil issues. Uh, but a VFD is generally going to be the best option because you could start it at a lower hertz. It's going to be uh, softer on startup. I mean, it, it's a great option to control uh, your com your compressor capacity. I mean, is it the cheapest option? Absolutely not. You could do a digital compressor for half the cost of what a VFD could. Uh, head up, head swap. So, I mean, your payback's going to be a little bit longer. But in you know the grand scheme of things, is it a better option? I think so. I'd rather have a VFD. I mean, it's a little, it's a lot smoother. Some of the other things, like you said, besides you know. Uh because we do, you know, we do have two types of compressors that that, are, that can go on VFD, right? We have one that has its own oil pump on there, and we also have, you know, basically has it's a sling compressor, comparable to a Copeland K body. Uh, Bitzer makes uh, one that basically has an impeller in there, and basically slinging around all the oil to, you know, to all the crank and the and the, you know, uh, crankshaft and all the uh, pistons and rods. Um, on top of usually not liking uh, any any compressor at all, liking any liquid. Anything driven with a VFD really, really hates liquid. Um, man, uh, you know, typically, you know, like I said before, 20 degrees is what I typically like to see for a minimum amount of superheat going to that Victor rack. I have seen 15, especially, when, you know, when, when you have systems with short runs where basically the rack's right on top of right where the cases are. 
um, you better have at least 20 degrees of superheat if you're running a VFD compressor. Because basically you're you're slowing down that compressor, right? And you run the risk of, you know, compressing that vapor a lot longer instead of having that additional heat of that thing running real fast and actually, you know, maybe helping vaporize some of that that liquid with some of the heat of from the compressor. Um, so make sure that your liquid situation is under control or you will be replacing that compressor. Make sure you're... Um, just make sure you have, have a, like I said, 20 degrees of superheat at a, at a minimum at all times. Um, and like you said before, you know, making sure that the, uh, you know, your, your oil pressure doesn't, uh, doesn't start suffering uh, from that. Uh, the other, one of the other things that can happen with having a VFD, you know, because a VFD can actually basically, you know, make the motor spin one way or another. Um, I've seen already where you'll have the VFD compressor running and then another compressor will run and there'll be some nasty, uh, you know, vibration going on and, and could potentially break some lines. Um, and that's usually due to a uh, harmonic imbalance when you're running, you know, one, one motor, one direction, uh, three phase motor, one direction, another three phase uh, motor, another direction, you know, they're, they're directly 180 degrees out of phase sine wave. So basically what happens is you, you have this, internal vibration that that goes along through throughout all the piping and stuff which could potentially break suction headers and and, and other types of uh you know piping connected to the machine yeah one thing i want to go over with that like that is one thing that causes that there is at times because i remember me and you went over this and i've gone over, i've been to several racks where contractors have tried to like clamp the living shit out of discharge headers like i i went to one and it had like five cush clamps in like a two foot spot where it kept breaking discharge lines okay so I, we checked all the phasing they were all phased the same they're all going the same way um certain compressors get harmonic uh vibrations at certain frequencies now these drives are great they're fuck, they're advanced you could delete frequencies out of drives and make it skip. So, like, I I go through these stores. I I do this all the time on CO2 stores. Um, I'll be tuning them. I see it more so on CO2 stores than I do anything else. Uh, on the bitters, like, I'll be going through and, like, say, I'll go through, you know, a point of a, a frequency at a time. It may take me an hour to do a compressor, but, you know, say at 47.5, uh, hertz, it starts vibrating and making noise to 48.3 hertz. I'll take that frequency range out of the drive. Uh, you can go in the drive and tell it to skip that, and it'll skip that frequency when it when it's uh, maintaining. It's great. It instantly stops the problem if you don't have one out of phase, and it's an easy way to stop issues like that. Yeah, I think that's uh, we covered pretty much everything uh, with drives, and, and you know, there there is more stuff that we could cover, but I mean, we'd be talking for hours. So, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to on a different episode get into some like drive troubleshooting. Maybe the next one we'll uh, we'll do we'll get into drive actual troubleshooting and go through like how you know we actually go to troubleshoot these things. All right, man. So, but that, that was a good one. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. Have a nice night. All right, guys. Thanks again. Now, that brain that you gave me, was it 
Hans Delbrooks? No. Ah. Good. Uh, would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. Abby normal. I'm almost sure that was the name. <laughs> Are you saying that I put an abnormal brain into a seven and a half foot long, 54 inch wide gorilla? Is that what you're telling me? Quick, quick, get him up! What? Three syllables, yes? Goody two-shoes. Betty by Bo's time again. Good night, honey. Sweet dreams, dear.
dreams. What a terrible dream. I am parched. That's better. I could use another one of those. <laughs> <laughs> 